Welcome to another week of Unmentionable Podcast. I'm Jordan Power. If you have a couple minutes, go on iTunes. Rate the show five stars. It's that pink app on your phone. Happy Pride. (laughs) Hit the five stars and write a little something. And also, if you listen on Spotify, go to the top. You can hit the star and give it five stars. I don't think they allow comments yet, but we know a lot of you have been leaving Spotify reviews. We've gone from 100 to 900 almost in about a month so definitely the show's growing and we appreciate you taking a couple seconds and doing that for us my book's famous anus it's available on amazon.com including the audio book which is for free with the subscription you can attend them the free stuff well actually i get 50 dollars from audible i'm not supposed to say that am i supposed to say that? i don't know, <laughs> if I don't know. Anyways, Stephen's coming up. Stephen Diamond, uh, who you might remember from Tiger King 2, is coming up. But at first, I want to talk about the fact that <laughs> my friend told me, I don't know if this is like an urban legend. Chivy will tell me because, you know, he's a geek. The iMessage is, the well, iPhone's coming out with a new feature for iMessage where you can edit or unsend messages. Unsend messages, yeah. Uh, the new iOS 16. That's not, okay, f- it's not fair. Let me tell you why it's not fair. <laughs> Because when I was a, I wouldn't say alcoholic. I just I'd say like, <laughs> I'd say like, lover of alcohol. Alcoholic. <laughs> now, I don't think I've ever been an addict. Like I, I was able to keep my life on the rails, so that's like a sign. But like you know, there's periods where things get a little crazy, yeah. and it's like I had to live with the consequences of my actions, right? So when I would text someone at three in the morning, like, I love you or some (laughs) ridiculous nonsense that I didn't, you mean everything to me. Like, I think we're meant to be together. I had to live with the consequences because I couldn't get it back. And you wake up the next morning and that shame that you live in, that you marinate in, it forms you to be a better person. And you grow up and you go, fuck, you're so embarrassing. Grow up. Now you bitches can just like hope they don't wake up. And wake up before they get up and edit it to be like, I love myself or something like that. It's not fair. It's not not fair. fair. You should have to live. Life's not like that, by the way. It's setting you up for like, isn't it setting you up for a really shitty life? Like life doesn't work like that. You know, when you like drive drunk and hit the five year old and you're in jail for 20 years, like that's the consequences of your action. There's no edit button for that. So I feel like, along with the younger generation not being, you know, able to endure hardship because they're coddled, I also feel like we should teach them that when you write that text, when you send that dick pic to your teacher by accident instead of your boyfriend, (laughs) that you should have to live with the consequences of your actions. (laughs) That's just what it is. is. Life doesn't have an edit button. You say, oh, shouldn't have said that. Oh, shouldn't have said that. By the way, speaking of speaking of awkward edit buttons, I was walking. Oh, this is so embarrassing. I was coming out of the gym the other day. I started doing CrossFit again because CrossFit, I don't know if anyone's ever done CrossFit, but, um, you know, CrossFit's an amazing workout. I don't even know how to describe it, but, you know, it's just this, like, you know, cross training where, like, you're doing pull-ups and burpees and a wall ball, which is where you take a ball and you sort of like squat down and throw it up. And I had to do 250 of those the other day. Yeah. I look like I just Kate, I look like uh, Kate Upton. I just had like eight kids. <laughs> I, when Shivy saw me walking, it was like my uterus was like prolapsing. So disgusting. I don't have a uterus. I'm out of a uterus. But the point is, is that like 
I was doing CrossFit. I've been doing CrossFit, and it's it's honestly I can't recommend it enough. It's it's a little bit of a cult, but it's usually a very strong community. People are are really nice. You can you know, and also when you're in the middle of a workout and you feel like you're gonna pass out, and you get through it. I do believe that that transfers over to your personal life and you do really realize that like I can do anything like I thought I was going to die a second ago and I beat it and now I'm going to transfer that energy and that message to other parts of my life. Now, it also is great for your body. It shreds your body. I've never shred fat like that. My abs were popping. But the thing about CrossFit is it's great for about three months and then you inevitably will get some sort of injury. (laughs) Like, it's great, and then you'll have, like, and and this is the thing, is, like, people who love CrossFit, they get really defensive, because, you know, you're in a cult. (laughs) I mean, you are. You're in a cult. You're in a cult. And some people get meetings from cults. I'm not saying it's necessarily the worst thing, but you get a little defensive when I say that, is that, like, I do it, and I'm like, I'm having great results, but it's so hard on your body that, like, boom, month three, my knee goes. Month five, my elbow goes. And it's, like, a thing that happens to all people who do CrossFit. And they're like, and then people will always say, like, well, it's not, it's your form. You're not doing it properly. Look, your form's off. You're not following the rules. But it's like you made me do extremely difficult things like lifting a barbell over my head of 120 pounds and as fast as I could. That, By the way, that's how it works. Do it as fast as you can in a period of time and everyone finishes at different times, right? And you cheer on the last person, right? And so they tell you to do that and then invariably you get injured, and they're like, it was just your form. And it's like, no, the very, like, basis of it is you, you told me to do it as fast as possible. Obviously, then gonna be wrong. my form will be compromised to a degree, especially yeah. when I'm tired at a certain point. But the point was I was coming out of CrossFit, you know, and some people are doing a little too much. They look a little palliative. <laughs> but I was coming out of CrossFit. <laughs> Get to the story. And the man said... This man came out and he had his bike and he was probably about like 80 years old and he was going for a, a bike a bike ride late at night. It was probably like 8 p.m. And he turns to me. I wrote it down. But he turns <laughs> to me. And you know when you're like, okay, I don't know if like, first of all, you come at a CrossFit and you feel like you've just been beaten. Yeah. You feel like kind of nauseous, kind of high on endorphins and also like you've been beaten so you're just disoriented you probably shouldn't even be driving yeah like i feel like honestly like you need to take a break also dehydrated dehydrated and he comes out with his bike and he looks at me and he said beautiful night tonight beautiful night is what he said and i'm kind of out of it and i swear to god this is what i said and i don't i don't know if it was like subconscious or something i went yes i am <laughs> Yes, I am. That's what I said to him. Oh, my God. Which doesn't even make sense. Number one, I'm not a beautiful knight, personally. Secondly, I just call myself beautiful. Yes, thank you for noticing that I am beautiful. Even though I look like a drowned rat right now coming out of CrossFit, I am beautiful. Yes, I went, yes, I am. And then and I just said, Oh, did he reply back? Or did he just like, yeah. No, I just kept walking. <laughs> I just kept walking. I was like, uh, uh, it's the CrossFit. <laughs> Beautiful night. Y- yes, I am. <laughs> Thank you for noticing. It's like when Shivam always, Shivam always, when he sees something like the CN Tower, don't get me started. Oh my God. Or he sees like, uh, or when I took him to fireworks, he always, it's like an ongoing joke that I do every time. So like, 
I'm, I should be bigger than this. He always goes, so beautiful. And yeah. then I always go, thanks. <laughs> but I've done it like a hundred times. <laughs> but I like kind of kind of move my hair back. I'm he like, always thanks. I feel so beautiful. <laughs> anyway. Okay. Well, let's get to Steven. My beautiful knight. Who we did admit in the in- middle of the interview who was gay. Yeah. We knew. I knew. <laughs> Shimam didn't know. I knew. I, didn't know. I watched a couple of videos and I was like, there's a gay the man performing. Mm. You know, you see it. You see it unofficially at like the gay bar. Performing, peacocking, they call it. Yeah. Just oh. performing. He just kind of has that pizzazz. Yeah. Da da la da da. He just kind of <laughs> had it. Yeah. I was like, he's one of my people. <laughs> Anyway, Steven's coming up on the show, and uh, if you want to check out his course, if you're interested in the kind of stuff that he's doing, it's lifeskillsmasterclass.com. I think that's right. I said it during the interview, but um, you can get in contact with him. There it is right there, lifeskillsmasterclass.com. His website is stevendiamond.com. We will put all that information in the show notes. Enjoy the interview. And um, we moved into these apartments. And because my dad was gone, he needed a babysitter for me. And there were these two young boys that were a year apart from each other that lived in the building across from us. And their mother offered, because I was in, rode the bus with these two boys, and they offered, uh, she offered to watch me in the afternoons. So when I would come home with the boys on the bus, I would just go to her house and we would watch Scooby-Doo and eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And she would keep me until my father would come home and honk the horn and I'd run out and go away. So these boys became some of my best friends. And um, one weekend, my father decided to take us to King's Dominion. My dad loved amusement parks and so do I to this day. I'm a roller coaster fanatic. And um, he had decided to take us to King's Dominion, which was in Richmond about two hours away. So we went, spent the whole day at the amusement park. When we came home, we caught their mom and dad fighting in front of, in the front yard of the apartment complex. And my dad could tell that it was, wasn't good. So he said, Hey boys, let's order a pizza. And why don't you guys come on in and just stay with, with us tonight. So he beeped the horn, waved at them. They waved back at, at us. And we just went into the house and my dad ordered some pizza and, Things were normal. We were watching TV late at night, probably 10, 11 o'clock at night. There's a knock at the door and it's their mother. And when she came to the door, she was kind of shook. You could tell that something was wrong. She was disheveled. Her hair was all messed up and she looked like she'd kind of been roughed up a little bit and she was crying. You could tell that she had been crying anyway. And she wanted the boys to come home. And so, you know, my dad can't hold them hostage. So he said, okay, go home. So the boys went back uh, home. We went to bed about three or four in the morning. We hear all these sirens and cop cars and ambulances. And we lived in the back of the complex. So our apartment windows faced faced, uh, uh, some woods. And we could see over the top of the apartment complex, all of the red uh, lights from the, the, the fire trucks and everything. And my dad thought the building was on fire. So he came and woke me up and I was just in t-shirt and underwear and he threw some shoes on me and out the door we went. And when we got out there, we realized that all of the rescue people were paying attention to the building that my friends lived in. 
So my dad went up to a fireman or a policeman, I can't remember now, and started talking to him to find out what was going on. And I slipped away and went around the back of the apartment and went up the back stairs and I walked right into the apartment. And when I walked in, uh, I suddenly splashed in a pool of blood. And I looked down and I see her head and part of her shoulders to my left side and her body was separated over to the right. And uh, what felt like five minutes was probably five seconds. But as soon as I walked in, someone noticed me, of course, and swooped me up and hauled tail out the building with me and got me back to my father, who was now at the bottom of the staircase and uh, handed me to my dad. And my dad just held me in his arms. And he looked down at my shoes that were covered in blood and he just pulled the shoes off with one finger. They dropped to the ground, never saw them again. As my dad was taking me home, I was looking over his shoulder and um, I saw the police bring the boys uh, down the stairs and they had wrapped each one of the boys up in a sheet so that they couldn't see what I had seen in the living room, which was the dismembered um, body of their mother. Jesus. When, when things like this uh, keep happening to you and your publisher sent me some other things, which we don't have to get into, but um, do you then retreat every time deeper into the magic? Meaning, I think a lot of people, you know, just, they in bury thousands it. of interviews that I've done, you're the only person that's ever picked up on that. <laughs> Shut up, Shippo. <laughs> cancel his microphone. He's annoying me. Um, no, no. It's, no it's, seriously, you're the only one that's asked me that, well, and you're absolutely the, correct. Well, I think it's the relatability that I'm feeling here. Just, I mean, I'm not a magic, magician, but but I am an entertainer who came from a lot of trauma. And then, you know, you make, sure. in my situation, you make everything a joke for years, and eventually your life becomes one. So I guess I'm trying to understand that when you keep going deeper and deeper and deeper into the illusion, do you just keep burying this stuff? deeper and deeper into another box in your head you're good you're good that's exactly <laughs> what happened that's exactly what happened yeah i compartmentalized all of this all of the trauma in my life the molestation the rape the murder all of those things that happened to me as a very young boy um all of that stuff i just buried and locked away in you know a secret compartment that i hoped would never open but here's what we don't realize is that if you don't deal with your issues, someday your issues will deal with you. So how did they and deal so, with you? Um, they came back 20 years later in the form of a complete mental nervous breakdown. I collapsed on stage while working as the opening act for the Osmond Brothers. I mean, if I was working with the Osmond brothers, I would collapse. Okay, <laughs> yeah. I was gonna say they're a little bit they're a little bit creepy. Um, people probably thought it was part of the show. They're like, this is this is wild. This is wild. So nothing manifested. You no, know, I'll tell you then? some I'll tell you some behind yeah, the go scenes ahead. about them. Yeah. They, You're they are actually fucking? some of the most wonderful, loving, sweet, caring people I've ever met in my life. <laughs> and not only that. But Jimmy Osmond paid for my therapy in those early days. So he took care of me. And actually, Jimmy said to me, 
uh, we have the best doctors available. We're going to get you to make sure that you see the right people. And he did. And so I, I have a huge debt of gratitude in my heart for those people because I'm not sure I would have survived that. And I don't know I would be here sitting here talking to you today if it hadn't been for the compassion that those uh, that family showed me. Do, but do you think it's that the resilience that you developed from surviving all these things over the years, then you were able to just channel that into career success, whereas something I, I do believe part of it's genetic or in, somewhere in our constitution where other people just completely fall apart. Um, like, what do you think mm -hmm. it is about you and perhaps the people that you've worked with that you were able to then sort of say to the world, fuck you, I'm going to make it, I'm going to succeed, nothing's going to stop me, I'll have a mental breakdown later, but for now, I'm just going to sort of <laughs> ascend to the top. You know, as an entertainer, you'll relate to this. Uh, when that curtain goes up, the show goes on. And I learned that at a very early age. It doesn't matter whether you are sick. I've done shows where I was vomiting and had diarrhea at the same time. And, and literally was doing it during the show and would, you know, run off stage, vomit in a bucket, would run back out, finish the show and keep going. And you would do it in a way that the audience didn't really know what was happening. But from a very early age, that work ethic was instilled in me. And uh, when you've got shows to do and you're doing two shows a night, six days a week, you know, you're in a different city every day those kind of things, you learn that the show comes first, no matter what. I don't care if you're, I've done it with broken arms. Uh, I've done it with ripped open. Uh, I had a, a place on my arm that was ripped open and needed stitches. It was bleeding profusely. And someone went and grabbed duct tape and ducked my duct tape to my arm. And I finished the rest of the show. So I, I think that it comes from that place. Um, you just learn over the years that when you have, uh, when you dedicate your life to something and you're, this is the difference. When I call someone an artist, very rarely do I call someone an artist. I'll use entertainer a lot. I'll say, oh yeah, they're a great entertainer or whatever. But I save the term artist for the people that I know came up the hard way and really have the chops. And I used to tell young magicians would come to me all the time and say, you know, I want to be you. What advice can you give me? And I would always tell them, learn to stand on a stage and entertain with nothing but a microphone. When you are a true entertainer, when you can walk up onto a platform with five seconds notice and someone hand you a microphone and say, go. And if you can do 20, 30, 45 minutes, you know, and, and you don't even, you don't need props. You don't need magic tricks. You don't need nothing. You can just get up there and have that audience rolling in the aisle and be and entertain them. That is a true artist. Sure. That's someone who has mastered their craft, who understands how to take those people in and take them on that emotional roller coaster of a journey and, you know, have them crying, have them laughing, have them a little bit emotional, have, you know, you, you know your craft and you know how to uh, move the emotions of the people that are sitting in that audience. And it doesn't matter whether it's five people or 500 to 5,000, the skill set is the same. But in today's world, people, we don't have that skill set anymore. 
You know, you, you see artists that are, I call them manufactured talent. Sure. Um, there's a tremendous amount of manufactured talent, which is just produced by either a group of producers or a record company or someone like that, a network or someone like that to just drain them, drive every penny that they can squeeze out of them while they're popular. And as soon as they're no longer popular, they well, let them go. Yeah. And that's the thing when and I that's, meet a lot of younger people, and I've said this many times on this show, is that they don't, you, you, they're used to instantaneous fame and they don't put the time in to hone a skill. I, I, I think it was Amy Schumer was saying that, you know, when she gained a lot of career success around like 30, I don't know, she's like 32 or something. People were calling her an overnight success. And she was like, I've been in this business for 11 years. And I think that's the yeah. thing is that people don't see the past. They don't see the hours. They don't see the grind. Um, you know, I wrote a book at 32, but I started writing when I was 23. Um, but that those kind of people you're talking about and a lot of the instantaneous TikTok success and stuff, it doesn't translate to like you see people on TikTok and stuff like that. They're fun when someone's taking a dump, but it doesn't really like translate to a cultural impact. And like you mentioned, it's very ephemeral. Uh, meaning that uh, there'll be a new blip blop pretty soon and they'll be on that. And true artists, you know, you, you're Joan Rivers that can have a career of 50 years or you're Eric Clapton or you're, you know, Taylor Swift is playing guitar for eight hours a day at 11. People don't see that. And I think I always say to people, like, it's fun. It's fun for flash in the pan. But if you want to be someone who's going to succeed, who's able to find purpose in your 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, you look at Joan Rivers, 82, touring the world, writing books, then you need to not only move with the time, but you need to have real talent because eventually you peel it back and the talent needs to be there to last. And that's so much of like, I'm so happy you said that because like, I say to young people, it's like, you got to work. Like, you got to work. If you want to be X, you got to learn how to be X. And there's a million steps in that. And um, it's so lost on this. Master like, your craft. Master your craft. Yeah. And it's just, it's so lost on so many young people because they see some cutie on TikTok flipping their hair. <laughs> um, and they think that's, that's, fame they think that's i mean it is fame but they think that's a vocation is, is a better way of putting it you know i'll tell you um i i know what fame is um i was on nubalus which was seen by 80 million people every week and the one thing that it taught me was that i never wanted to be famous again um because it's a horrible way to live and if people truly understood what it was like to be famous on that level and I'm kind of experiencing it again since Tiger King has aired because, you know, Tiger King is one of the most successful franchise in all of documentary history. And uh, over globally, worldwide, over 100 million people have seen the series. So when 100 million people now know who you are, um, your life changes. And, and I think that one of the things that this time around I'm enjoying it because I have the skill set of my younger years. But back when I was on Nubalus back in the 90s, uh, I did not enjoy it. I was being paid $10,000 an episode, which I thought at that time was a huge amount of money. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's you know incredible. But what I didn't realize was how difficult it was going to be. We would work 18, 20 hours a day. Um, sometimes we would do three different shopping mall appearances in the same day in three different countries. We'd be in one country in the morning, get on a jet, 
fly to the next country in the afternoon, do another appearance, get on a jet and fly to a third country and do an appearance there. Mm. And so when you're living that kind of life, you, you start to become sleep deprived. Sleep was like gold to me. It was the most valuable thing that I could find because when you were awake, you were on stage. And the only time you weren't on stage is when you were in your hotel room with that door shut or you were asleep. Otherwise, you were basically, you know, being marketed by a giant network. And so it, it was, it taught me very early that that was something that I, I did not want. Um, and plus living under that scrutiny uh, was really difficult. And back in those days, it's not like it is today. Um, you know, anyone that knows me today knows that that I'm as gay as a unicorn farting glitter. But back in those days, you couldn't be out. So my greatest secret wasn't how to saw a lady in half or make her fly through the air. My greatest secret was hiding my you. sexuality. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. And and so I had this huge secret, this burden burden that I had to carry around in every moment of my day, me and my production manager who just passed away last year, but he was by my side for 28 solid years. And my production manager and I were constantly scheming about how to keep this secret. And it was horrible way to live. It was, I would just never recommend and living under that kind of a microscope people think it's wonderful and they go, wow, everywhere you go, people know you. Yeah. Think about it. Everywhere you go, people know you. Yeah, every low, and every every time that you just don't every talk low, to yeah. every high, every time we're humans, we're infallible, and so eventually you're going to screw up. You're going to make mistakes. I've had this conversation with Justin Bieber about the early days. Um, I produced his 21st birthday here at a nightclub in Las Vegas. And he and I had a long conversation about fame, about being famous, about what, you know, and he said to me, you know, people just have no idea. He was like, I, I had no idea. And, and it's true. You don't know what you don't know until you know. Well, I want to ask you about what are the lows like? Because, I mean, you go to these places, people are screaming, bright lights, excitement, smoke, elation. And then it's midnight and you're in a hotel room in a random city struggling with your sexuality. But that aside, and it's dark and you've just dropped so dramatically from the high. Yeah, I'll tell you, one of the best days of my the best parts of my day and the worst part of my day was when they would take me back to the hotel at night. Because when that hotel room door shuts it's just you and your thoughts. And that, my friend, can be a very scary place to be. And I'm not going to lie, there were many suicidal days. There were many days where I would just look out the window at some random city, half the time not even knowing what city I was in, and, and just think, it's just Groundhog Day. Every day, it's exactly the same. You wake up in the morning, you have radio shows, you have TV shows, you have promotion, you have a photo shoot, you have, you know, 
what interviews, whatever. And then you eat lunch and then you have to go do sound check and get ready for the show. And then you've got two shows to do. And then there's an after party or some meet and greet or something you've got to do after that. And then you get back at the hotel. It's like two or three in the morning and you got to be up at 6 a.m. because you got a flight to catch and you're just exhausted. You're mentally, emotionally and physically exhausted. And this will go on for literally years at a time. And so, you know, if people knew how difficult it was to tour, especially if you're touring with exotic animals, it's even three times more work than what it is in a typical bus and truck tour. But if people knew how difficult it was to be famous and how difficult it was to tour, there would be no tours and there'd be no, no famous people in Hollywood. Sure. Uh, I, I know a lot of very, very famous people. I mean, superstars. And I've had this conversation with many of them. And one in particular who has hit after hit after hit after hit record has told me uh, if I knew what I was getting myself into, I would have never learned to sing. Now, that's a pretty powerful statement. It's a big, bold statement, especially for this particular person. But I think that that it carries you to someplace else. I think that what the process does is reveal to you that there is a bigger picture that you're here for. And that once you get that platform, you begin to understand the responsibility that comes with it. You know, like Spider-Man says, you know, with great power comes great responsibility and it's true. And I think that that's where things get interesting in your career. When you get the platform and you become famous, the ones who realize, hmm, now I'm here, what am I going to do with it for the greater good than just myself? And when you start thinking the big picture and you start thinking that there might be a way that I can use this platform and where I am in life to make some change or to help or to make some sort of a difference in the world, just leave the world just a little tiny bit better than how you found it. That I think is what keeps celebrities on that track. Well, I think, but I think, I think that the, when they hit that point, yeah. So I think the the greatest happiness, well, it's been studied, but the greatest happiness in life comes from service. So I think in your or in their situation, whether it's I don't know, let's say it's like Taylor Swift, it's that like she mm -hmm. is providing people with you know escapism and uh, you know just just the earworms that she put to, she gives us all that. And that's like a service. She gives people little, sure. little bits of happiness, but I think it sort of like speaks to the sickness of the whole innate insecurity that I was saying is that like, it, what is it at the expense of? And it's usually at the expense your of soul. your soul, your friendships, your family, your peace, your peace of mind. Um, people don't see, I have a lot of friends that have, done publicity for a-listers and stuff like that and truly what they have said is half of them are crazy and half of them are <laughs> uh like total narcissists that you'd have to be to to bask in that sort of glory like you have there. to for someone yeah. to come up to you and touch you and start crying just because they're touching mm -hmm. you and you not think that that's an odd experience and that you're just a human being like them, you'd have to be on that level of narcissism to really kind of bask in it. Like I'm thinking like a Kim Kardashian or something like that. Like 
there's something, and it's she was true. willing to do anything, aka film herself getting fucked, to have that level of adulation. And I don't desire that at all. Even though I love doing this, uh, I don't. I don't desire that kind of artificial interaction. Well, I'll tell you. Um, I, I've as I mentioned before, I've worked with a lot of A-list people, and what I've learned over the years is that anyone that you find, this isn't just celebrities. This is any high-functioning individual. Uh, a Bill Gates, uh, Stephen Jobs, uh, Oprah Winfrey, Warren Buffett, anybody like that, uh, famous or not. But anytime you find someone who has a particular genius in a particular area, you're going to find that there is an equal and opposite dark side to that person. So for all of their genius, take Michael Jackson, for example. Uh, Michael Jackson's known the world over. Everyone knows Michael. We don't have to sell his credits. But the world also knows that for all of his genius and greatness and everything he gave the universe, there is that equal and opposite dark side. And I have found that to be true in pretty much every major celebrity or high-functioning individual. And that includes CEOs and all those kind of things uh, that I work with. Uh, I, I found that to be true. Given your upbringing and what you went through, do you find it hard to relate to people who haven't endured a level of hardship? That's a great question. Um, I did in the beginning. I don't so much now. Um, when I stopped touring in 2007 or eight, I can't remember now. I think it was 2007 stock market crash was in 2008. Yeah. So, uh, 2007, I stopped touring and I was done. I was exhausted mentally, emotionally, and physically. I'd been doing it for, you know, 28 years at that point and was just completely burnt out. And I didn't want to do anything that had anything to do with show business. And so I was looking for something else. And the one thing that clicked with me, the only thing that resonated with me, because I'd never done anything else since I was eight years old. So I didn't know what I wanted to do with myself. So I started exploring other things. And I was performing on a cruise ship. Uh, Royal Caribbean was gracious enough to give me my own ship. I was a permanent headliner on the ship, lived on the ship would be on the ship for 10 months at a time, had my oh God. full illusion Sorry, this show. Sorry, sounds like my nightmares, on the... <laughs> Well, cruises are just terrible. <laughs> it actually was a great way to live. I know, but every, every other part but, about them is disgusting to me. I just, I'm sure you were great. <laughs> yeah, it was, you know, it's a it's a great living. If you're a headliner, you can get that gig. It's, it's, it's a great, uh, it's a great life, but it's a very lonely life. Because I don't care how big that ship is or how pretty or fantastic that ship is. After being on it for 90 days, it becomes a dinghy. And so it's, it's, re, it's a really hard way uh, to live internally. You have to be someone who has a very strong character. And you have to be a very, very confident, self-secure per, uh, person to live that life. But I was on a cruise ship. Uh, we I was performing in Hawaii, uh, going from Hawaii to Tahiti to New Zealand, which was a 14-day cruise and back. And I, I'd been doing it for a couple of years at this point. And I remember um, being at this moment, this precipice in my life where I was like, you know, 
I'm pushing 50. I was in my forties at the time. And I was like, I'm pushing 50. I don't want to be a 50 year old magician on a cruise ship. That to me was just sounded like after the career I had had, this just sounded like the most worst thing in the world to me. And I was like, there's gotta be something more. And I had this concept enter my brain that there had to be something that I was meant to do that was bigger than myself. And I started looking for that. And I eventually found it, which is what I do today. Um, you, your audience will be shocked after this conversation to hear what I do today. But it's completely different from, you know, what I did my whole life. But today, I teach people how to stop their stress and anxiety in their lives. I teach them how to manage the things that keep them up at night. Um, I teach people how to stop panic attacks, how to stop stress and anxiety, all of that. I even go into corporations and do workshops on stress in the workplace. And I have found this to be some of the most rewarding, some of the best uh, work that I've ever done in my life. Um, because I take all my stories and all of the experience and everything that I have under me. And really the way I think of that today is all of that in the past was boot camp that was just preparing me for what I do today. So I had to go through all of that to be able to do what I do today because the work that I do today changes people's lives. It makes a huge difference. And when you see someone having a panic attack and you start talking to them and you realize these people have multiple panic attacks a day or a week and it's the quality of their life is horrible and they can't stop these panic attacks and you have the ability to teach them how to stop that in three minutes. That's powerful. I think what it I was, changes I people's think, lives. I think what I was getting at earlier is that um, maybe you're uniquely positioned to do this vocation specifically because you've had to be so resilient and you are a survivor especially when you were young. So I think that's probably why you're so good at it. But my question was about, um, it's hard to, do you find it hard to relate to people who haven't gone through what you've gone through? Because part of you would be like, God, that must be nice. You know, I had to deal with so much. Is that difficult for you? Yeah, it, it was in the beginning. When I stopped touring, it was really hard because I hardly knew how to use an ATM. Uh, I didn't know how to wash my own clothes. I didn't know how to cook my own food. If it didn't fit in a microwave in a hotel room, I didn't know how to cook it. Uh, I, I lived with room service my whole life. Whenever I got hungry, I picked up the phone and someone brought me food to my door. Mm-hmm. So it's like a stunted adolescence. You know, way. that's different. That's what it's, it, it sounds What's like. What's that? It's like a stunted adolescence in a way. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. When I came off the road, I had to learn to integrate myself into normal life. And I didn't know what normal life was. I had no concept. I had no clue what normal life was like. And um, it brought me to my knees. It, it was, it was a very, very difficult transition. Today I coach people about that transition uh, for, you know, there's a lot of rock stars who were famous in the seventies, eighties, nineties, even um, and even some in the early 2000s who who come off the road and they can't get work anymore because they only had one or two hits and, you know, the venues don't want to book them anymore. And they struggle to to make that transition from 
living their entire lives in show business with all that fame and glory and everything, and then transitioning into a regular life with everyday people. Um, it's a very, very hard thing to do. Is there a and I have a lot of, of them that will reach out to me. Is there a level of denial in them? Because they don't want the party to be over? I mean, oh, you look sure. at sort of like oh, Madonna sure. nowadays. Like, oh, gosh. I look at her and I'm like, Oh yeah. Uh, listen, I I think anyone should, you know keep performing, but I mean this is someone who's you know drastically altered their appearance and is probably having new surgeries every six months. And I said to someone the other day, I said, "But that's his fame's the most addictive drug because she doesn't want the party to be to end." And I feel like that's the yeah. Hard you can part. see it. You can see it. You can see it in a lot of old rockers. There are a lot of old rockers, you know, they're, they're pushing 60 and they've still got the long hair down here, but it's gray now, you know, and they try and still dress the same as they did like in the early nineties. And, you know, they, they, they're just stuck in their past. Um, but that's a disease in show business being stuck in the past. And, I was like that when I first came off the road. I definitely was stuck in the past, definitely did not want that party to end. And I think it was fear. Uh, it was it was completely fear-based because I didn't know how to uh, live in the real world. I didn't know how to talk to people. I am still very socially awkward. And I know that right now that's hard to, I seem very outgoing and everything, but you get me in a room full of people that I don't know in like a party atmosphere or something with just a drink in my hand. And I am the most awkward, most uncomfortable, ready to leave three minutes after I arrive person that you've ever met. Isn't that just the party that you're at? Sometimes I'm like that too. <laughs> <laughs> Could be. <laughs> Quality over quantity. I mean, it's, it's tough. You went, you've, I just wonder if as you get older, you, sort of think about what you sacrificed over those years for your vocation, meaning friendships, romantic connections. I mean, when you travel like mm -hmm. that, you really don't even, I mean, we're social creatures and it sounds like you weren't at all a social creature. So that's the part I think probably you didn't have time to be. Yeah. yeah. You didn't have time to be because for 28 years I was on the move. So you got to realize that for, you know, a 28 year period, you never stop moving. So when you're constant and you're in a constant state of touring or moving, you relationships are something that just don't have time to form, except for the people that you're touring with. They become your family and they even rotate in and out all the time. And then you when you reach a certain level in your career, you start going back to the same venues every year. And so, you know, the local crews that work at each venue and they become a part of your extended family. But really, that's it. And when it comes to the audience, you always look at them as the audience. And even when you meet them after the shows and meet and greets and all that kind of stuff, you tend to think of them as the audience. And so you don't build connections with them. You don't build relationships because you know that within a matter of hours, you're going to be gone. Mm -hmm. I feel like the impermanence of it all would be very surreal over the over just the years it's just sort of you didn't have any connection stability home base friends like mm. uh, i don't i don't know if there's definitely a heavy price to pay for that life yeah you know there's a there's a real heavy the grind of the road is you know that journey song um uh i can't think of which which one uh what the name of it is um Oh, I can't think of the Come journey on, song now, but there's a journey song where the lyrics talk about being on the road. 
um, Always Another Show, you know, that that song really resonates with me because those lyrics are so true. That was that was written by people who have lived their entire lives in a tour bus and they know what that life is like. And it's excruciating. It's grueling. It's really, really soul sucking to a certain degree, but you need that addiction. That addiction is when you walk out on that stage every night and you hear that audience in the showroom before the curtain goes up. And a lot of times you know, I do this thing where I have this little ritual that I do right before I go out on stage. Even to this day, I have this little center ritual where I bring myself to center. It's kind of like a little meditation, uh, 30 second little ritual that I do to pull my focus and bring my clarity uh, into a center point. And when I do this ritual, I would always go and stand right behind the curtain because I wanted to hear that audience and soak up that vibration that the audience, the anticipation, they're excited, they're waiting for the show and the curtain's about to go up and they know it. And so there's this, all this energy, this great, positive, nervous, happy energy that's flowing through the venue. And I would always go stand behind the curtain, soak that up and connect myself with the audience in that way. And this might sound like a bunch of hippie shit, but it really works. And, and in that moment, you become one with the stage, you become one with the audience and you're focused and you're vibrating, I believe at a much higher level at that point. And then it's showtime. And that is an addictive drug. And I realized when I was in therapy, talking about this with therapy and the, my therapist in the beginning, I realized she pointed it out to me. She said, do you realize what you're doing? She said, when you're in that state right before the show, you're releasing dopamine and ser serotonin. You're releasing these chemicals and you are literally through a process called neuro-linguistic programming. You're anchoring uh, this state of being to that little ritual that you do right before the show. And she was like, you're addicted to that. You're addicted to being on stage. Now, any real entertainer who's listening to this right now will really resonate with what I just described because they'll know what, the, what that feels like. But it is the best drug in the world. I, I've never experienced anything that could even come close to what that feels like. You know, just 30 seconds before that curtain goes up. It, it's the most powerful drug that I, I know of. What's the difference between Stephen Diamond, the entertainer, and then you on a Thursday night alone? <laughs> oh, I think I'd be very boring to most people. Um, <laughs> I like to lay on the couch with my dog and watch the first 48. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I meant more um, like I meant more like uh, the people that really know you. How would they describe you versus the star on stage? Oh, I think that in my private life, I'm, I'm um, an intense person. And I think that comes from show business. I'm laser focused. When I'm doing something, uh, there's no stopping me. And it al almost becomes an obsession when I'm uh, producing a project or working on a new project or whatever the case is. I, I have these blinders on kind of like a horse and I just can't see anything but the finish line. And until I get to that finish line, there's no break. So 
it's one of my worst qualities, to be honest with you. It's a double-edged sword because I think it's what makes me successful today, but it's also what robs me of some quality of life. It leaves, when you, when you are that kind of a person, it leaves very little time for friendships. Um, I have probably three or four very, very close friends. One of them is standing next to me right now, uh, Charlie, my assistant, who's my, my longtime assistant, has been working with me for, for a while. Uh, we're very, very close. But it's also that what we bond over is we both have similar values and similar um, interests in doing this kind of work. And so he enjoys the work. I enjoy the work. And it makes for a great friendship. I don't know. I could really be friends with someone um, that isn't involved in some way in my industry or um, in in what I do because I've never had that. Well, they're called. So uh, I don't know how they're called NPCs. The, is the is the slang the new. term for them? Because I, I I feel like I'm looking in the what's, mirror right now listening. What's to that you. mean? Because I don't know. Non-player character. characters. It's like essentially in video games that you have the main characters, and then you have the sort of characters that sort of just go along just with walk the sidewalk. And you know, if there's like a meme on Twitter. It'll say like I support the current thing, so it's like Ukraine or or whatever. Right. And and there are people who sort of just go through the motions of life. But when you were describing the uh, small social group, yeah. the people that you can relate to, to a degree. I, right. I was like looking in the mirror. That's why it was kind of interesting to me because I do often go to parties or social events and um, very often have a guilt about what I'm not accomplishing back at home. You know, I stopped doing that. I used to do that to myself and I stopped doing it. And I'll tell you why. It's very harmful to you. You're in effect trying to please other people. And what I realized through my years and years of therapy, and I teach this in my online course at Life Skills Masterclass, is that dot com. you have to Come embrace. Come on, you got a promo better. Dot com. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I have found that um, when you do that, you're doing a disservice to yourself. Because what you're doing is suppressing or hiding or preventing yourself from embracing a part of you that's just you. And years ago, when I had my near-death experience, I came back from that a completely changed human being. And my priorities were not the same. And I realized the things that were important to me before were no longer important to me after. And one of the things I stopped doing was trying to please everybody. And when you go to a party like that and you're trying to fit in and you're trying to have conversations that you don't enjoy, you're doing a disservice to the quality of your life and, and the quality of your happiness, your own personal happiness. So I stopped doing those things because I think it's much better to just embrace who and what you truly are on a deep, authentic level than trying to be something that you're not and you never will be. I think it's more – I was uh, sort of talking about it in terms of the finite amount of time and bandwidth and whatnot, and so I try to always balance oh, there's that. if I'm going to this party, should I be doing this? And then you do this weird thing where you're like, what am I going to get out of these people? Are they going to – am I going to laugh? Are they going to teach me about life? Is it going to elevate me as a person? I do I do that a lot. I think, I think some of it can be helpful, and I agree with you that some of it can be uh, harmful. Um, 
but it's it's it is something that I share with you that's sort of like um, I'm all in on the project blinders and I understand what you're saying because a lot of people that have gone on this ascendancy whatever career it is one of the biggest things they say is like I never enjoyed uh, the highlights I never because I was always thinking ahead I was and that's so much of what anxiety is and probably the people you deal with is anxiety is living in the future and depression is living in the past and that is the silver lining sure is, is that it it fuels you to a level the maniacal focus that you talk about does fuel you to success it's kind of the world we've built is that like if it was easy everyone would do it but I understand what you're saying is that like it yeah. comes at the expense of the mindfulness and um, never sort of just sitting in a moment and enjoying it because you're always thinking about like, OK, well, what's the next step? But yeah, but I can do so much better. Yeah, there's like five other things I got to do in the future. And that's something I've had to get better at. And especially like teaching Shivam about that is that like when there's a moment, just kind of enjoy it. Be in it. Yeah. Soak it up. Be present moment. Put your freaking phone down and just (laughs) be present moment. You know, um, about a week ago, I went to see uh, Katy Perry's new residency here in Vegas at Resorts World and um, best show she's ever done by far. And uh, I've worked with Katy. And so I, I went there and saw the show. I was so impressed. Couldn't believe it. But the one thing that shocked me because I don't often go see shows and sit in the audience. Usually I'm backstage or, you what know, involved in the production somehow. So it's a, <laughs> right. So it's a very rare situation for me to actually get to sit in the audience with an audience and, and watch a show. And this particular night I was in the audience. And the thing that shook me to my core was that there were 6,000 people in this room and not a single one of them was watching Katie. Ugh. They were all on their phones filming it. And from where I was sitting, all I could see were screens throughout the entire venue. And I was just like, wow, show business has changed. It's no longer about being present moment, sitting in that theater to go see an artist that you love. And you can't wait to hear that person sing your favorite song or whatever the case may be and sit there and really enjoy that moment and be present in that moment. Uh, Everybody in that entire place, and these tickets aren't cheap. And everybody in that place was a content creator. They were all creating content. And that's all they cared about. The little girl that was sitting next to me, there was probably a 15, 16-year-old girl that was sitting next to me. And the entire show, she had her camera and she was filming and she was using her fingers to zoom in and out, in and out. And I was like, I don't think she looked at physically looked at Katie one single time during the show. She was constantly filming. Yeah. Well, that's, the and more, I, I guess it's just a, no, it's the, well, it's the, it's, we're in the culture of the self. Right. And that's one of the more pernicious facets of the culture of the self is that she isn't filming that for herself. She's filming that to brag to others that she's at the Katy Perry concert, uh, which robs her of the moment, but then also speaks to that, um, kind of grotesque need for external validation when she's really doing something that's like not that interesting it's a concert but a lot of artists nowadays i a lot of comedians will do it but i also know like artists like lane eight i was going to go to that concert uh will make you check the phones for the reason that i think it's i think it's healthy but also i think it's very distracting for the artist 
um, because you're performing for screens, you're not performing for eyes. And I think that probably does something to their mental psyche to a degree. It would definitely affect me if, if I was still performing today and I was up on that stage and all I saw, especially in a magic show where there's a lot of audience participation and there's a lot of audience feedback that's required to take the people on this journey. Uh, I think that it would affect me to my core. It, it would be very, when you're the one standing on stage and all you're looking at is a sea of people like this, holding their phones up like this, at some point, I think I would have the thought, this is just me personally, I would have the thought, what's the point? Mm-hmm. Am yeah. I entertaining them or am I just doing this to record f- so they have something to record? Yeah, it's, uh, you hear that, Shivam? Okay, I'm gonna let I'm gonna let you go here because we've gone really long. But uh, you can check out uh, Stephen at LifeSkillsMasterclass.com. I want to end with this: um, the people that you help nowadays. June for recording this, what June 14th, 2022. What is the main issue that plagues people nowadays that come to you? Or well, it's changed. Um, I started this business 15 years ago, and back then. Uh, I would say that the number one complaint that people had would would be money. Um, most people would come to me and say that money issues are what stresses them out the most. That is completely changed. Uh, today, the environment of the world is really affecting them. And when I say environment, I'm not talking about the environment itself. But the, I'm talking but about too. the environment. Which <laughs> Don't we, worry, guys. That's going to. Right? <laughs> Yeah, I try not to do it it's, too much on the show. The environment. It's, uh, it kills people, you know. Yeah. <laughs> True. The environment in which we live in, um, the political state of things, uh, mass shootings, uh, all this kind, these kind of issues are really beginning to affect people on a mental health level. And when you pile that on top of all of the other stresses of just daily life. Um, it can bring a lot of people to their knees. Usually by the time they find my online resources, um, it, they're at a point in their life of no return. Uh, I have a lot of people that I have coached in my coaching program who have literally said to me, Stephen, this is my last option. If this doesn't work, I'm done. Mm. And that's a scary place to be. I love those people, by the way, because the transformation is amazing. But but it's, it's about hope. I think that the number one thing that this world needs right now is hope, love, and compassion, because there's a lot of hope missing. And I hear that over and over and over again by people who are saying, I just don't see the hope. There's no hope. And when you lose hope, it's over. You've lost everything. Someone who's about to take their own life, it's not that they want to die. It's that they want the pain to stop. And And some people can't find how to stop the pain in their lives. And those are the skills that I teach. I teach you how to stop the pain in your life. And I think that when you learn, I have a skills, not pills philosophy. And when I teach you a set of skills, I think that it allows you to live a better quality of life because no one can take that away. The pill bottle will never run empty. You'll never need a prescription for it. And it's always going to be there to serve you. And I think that that um, 
you know, that's that's why I enjoy doing what I what I do today. Okay, I have one more question. I lied, <laughs> but you just you just brought this sure. over me. One of the things that uh, people, you know, psychotherapists, psychiatrists, coaches, stuff like that, talk about is that it's well that the experience is um, depression themselves um, because you would spend the day sort of hearing about all the problems of the world, even the ones you hadn't even thought of yourself, right? Oh, I didn't even think of that one. That, yeah, that's terrible too. Babies die at this age or something like that. And it starts to eat at them. And how do you do your job while hearing about things that are irrefutable, you know, the material realities of life, the climate change, the, uh, you know, surveillance, the uh, political stage, how do you hear all that and then sort of like not let it blow back at you? Well, the first thing I have to tell you is I'm not a doctor and I don't give medical advice. I teach people skills. Um, and so the way I handle that is I don't care what's happened to you. To me, it's almost irrelevant what has happened in your past, because I know the change that's going to happen when I teach you a better way of processing information. Uh, I have this little saying, people get tired of me saying it, but it's better thinking equals better results. When you learn how to process information on a better level, you start making better decisions in your life, which ultimately changes the quality of the life that you live. And I think that that's the missing piece of the puzzle. Um, we're never taught how to think. We're never taught how to process information. We're never taught how to make decisions in our lives. So those are the three core principles that I teach in, in Life Skills Masterclass, because that is life-changing. And I think that when you learn how to process information on that level, what happened to you becomes less of an issue, and you start looking for hope in the future because you see the path, and you begin to say to yourself, you know what? I can get better. So I focus on the end result. That's what I'm focused on. So when they tell me all of these things and a lot, and to be honest with you, I've experienced a lot of this stuff myself. So when these people come to me and they say, this has happened to me, that's happened to me, that happened in the back of my head, I'm going, okay, I've been through it too. I don't go into detail with it about them usually, but I use my experience from what I've gone through and say, this is what worked for me. This is how I dug myself out of that pit. And and you can too. And it was that show must go on mentality that I learned really starting at the age of eight that I think has brought me to this place where I'm at today. Excellent. Wow. You've lived a fascinating life. I could see why I, I, I'll be honest, reading sort of about you when you said Netflix was, Netflix was doing a documentary, I was like, yeah, I could see that. But now I can really see that. Yeah. Like you really have a lot more layers to you. Um, through like a long form interview, you can kind of see. So what a fascinating life. Are you going to write a book? Uh, you mean another one? Oh, I, oh. <laughs> um, someone didn't do his homework. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Charlie's like um, pissed right now. He's like that idiot. Yeah. I'm going to write it. I'm going to write another one. Um, but, but yes, I, I am working on a, on another book as we speak. It's tentatively title entitled what matters most. And it's going to be about the things I've learned in life that truly matter. Well, don't call the famous anus because that's mine. You title. can find out more about you, that. I don't want you stealing that from me. You can find out more about that at uh, stephendiamond.com. Okay. And you can check him out at lifeskillsmasterclass.com. We'll put all his information in the show notes. Thank you, Stephen, for your time. I really appreciate it. 
It's been a pleasure, guys. Take care. Take care. Bye.